This is episode 43 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Ginger Gaffney. Ginger is a top-ranked horse trainer, and she received an MFA from the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. Her work has been published in Tin House, Witness, Quarterly West, and other major publications. She lives in Verlarde, New Mexico, and today we're going to be discussing her new memoir, Half Broke. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi everyone, welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight. I'm Carly Cade, and today I am so excited to be here with Ginger Gaffney. Hi Ginger, welcome to the show. Hi Carly, thanks for having me. Of course, I, I'm so excited to speak with you. Ginger was so wonderful, and she sent me a copy of her new book, Half Broke, which we're going to talk about today in the interview, and I just loved it, and I couldn't get enough. I think I read it in two days, which is always hard for, I think, an author to hear because we spend, you know, years and months <laughs> and time, blood, sweat, and tears on our books, and, you know, and then people devour them in a you know, couple days, which is great, but also it means oh, I got to get back to the computer and write another one, right? So. So Ginger, I'd love to start these conversations off with, you know, talking about how your love of horses began. You're an author, you're a horse trainer, uh, you're a teacher of riding and writing, and, uh, and you've been working with horses and their people for over 25 years. So, you know, can you talk about where your love for horses began? I always had love for horses like so many of us, but I was not able to actualize it with my family because I was the only one in my family to love and be this passionate about horses. Uh, and my family really didn't have the resources. They listened to me and they would give me little plastic horses for gifts and stuffed animals. And I acquired quite a bit of those <laughs> for many, many years. And on the way to elementary school, there was a stable uh, that I passed every day. And I finally got up the nerve because I'm a super introvert, but I finally got up the nerve to stop there one day and ask if I could help uh, brush the horses. I'm sure I said brush because I was, you know, seven or eight years old when I asked. So it was an old man who was a smoker and a drinker. And I'll uh, for, never forget the smell of that barn. So many barns smell like that. That was my first time where I was able to get in touch with a, with a horse. And then I rode there for a while, rode a lot of his ponies and a friend of mine and I rode together. But that was it for, for a long time. I could ride uh, my friend's horses or we would go and lease a horse until college. And I actually rented in my sophomore year in college, I rented an apartment off campus and it was a downstairs of a house but they had horses in there and I was able I illegally rode them because I was on basketball scholarship and um I, and I was not allowed to ride them while I was on scholarship and so I would sneak off on the weekends and stay away from campus and ride ride those horses there so I don't know I think I've been trying to sneak around and get to the horses my whole life and finally after college I got my first 
course. When you need to do it, you have to do it and nobody can stop you. Not nobody can stop you. So <laughs> that is absolutely right. I, you know, yeah. it's like doing anything you can to be around the horses and, and you did it well. I mean, you found ways to have horses in your life, you know, even when you didn't have one of your own. And I think you explained uh, perfectly a lot of young people's experiences they you know they don't know where it comes from it's like we're born with it or something and then we we start with collecting the stuffed animals and then the plastic horses and then when we're old enough we go out there and find ways to clean stalls brush them do anything we can to be with them uh yeah. and you know and so so today you know you are a horse trainer you work with experienced riders as well as anyone who wishes to get close to the power and honesty of the horse which i love and obviously you're a lifelong horse lover but what made you really want to pursue a career with horses training horses just i loved them i needed them i didn't didn't have words for it back then but it was after college i started uh, going to a barn taking lessons and the woman there thought i was a good enough rider to just like start riding her exercising her horses for her and she had a big barn so i i got a job there and it was her, you know, who said to me, you should think about doing this for, you know, a career because you're very, very good. You're very natural. And, you know, all you need is one person. I definitely needed somebody to say, Ginger, you could do this. And she was that person. And then I also had a, a wonderful neighbor when I moved out to the out off campus and out into the country. And he he's in my book. You know, he he was really my teacher for a lot of years. Yeah, and he's uh, the one that led you to your heart horse in the, in the right. book, your, your horse that you that you had that changed a lot of things for you. This, I think this is kind of a perfect segue to start talking about uh, your memoir, Half Broke. You give us a glimpse into your experience working with troubled horses at an alternative prison ranch in New Mexico. And it's a facility that's run entirely by the, the prisoners there. And, and you also detail your growing understanding of your, your own struggles in life. So, you know, could you tell us a little bit more about, about the premise of, of Half Broke, your memoir? It takes place the first year and a half, um, 20, March 2013, uh, and then goes for about a year and a half. I've been working at that ranch for seven years, but I, but I wrote only about the first year and a half. And so I got a call like many trainers get with a hysterical person on the other end saying that they were having trouble with their horses and she was crying and it was a very loud phone call. And I finally figured out it was the place right across from my house. It's a prison alternative. It's called Delancey Street Foundation. And they are all uh, people who are resentenced from prison. Most of them are felons uh, and reoccurring felons, meaning that's not their first time in prison or jail. And, you know, multiple years of drug addiction. Many people are illiterate at the ranch and they've never held down a job. And that's a pretty serious group of people, I guess, is what I want to say. And they they have this ranch right across the river from my house. It's 17 acres and they have all kinds of rehabilitative setups for their people there, but they have horses too, and nobody knew anything about the horses. That's why they had all the trouble, but they didn't know anything about horses for a very long time. So they were living with these horses using pretty old training techniques because I, I was witness to some of the things they were doing and they had not asked for help. And I was the first person to come onto the property ever that helped them with their horses and they've been doing this since the 1970s so (laughs) yeah that's why that's why when you read the book you'll you'll probably understand better why the horses were so troubled 
And that was something that really struck me in the beginning of your book, because I've never heard of a horse as described as predatory because they're, they're flight animals. So in herd animals. So, you know, when, when I read the, the introduction and how, you know, the circumstances with which you entered to start working with these horses, I was taken, taken aback because they, they were that dangerous. They were, you know, they were ready to attack humans. And that's something I think horse lovers have a hard time wrapping their heads heads around. And in particular, one was was pretty seriously injured. And it leads me to the next question. Horses on this ranch had developed behaviors that were dangerous and the residents were dealing with, you know, their own issues, including trouble with the law and addictions like you just described to us. You know, these those are situations when many many people would find like super frightening, you know, not only the horses, but also the humans. Why did you decide to give these horses and humans a chance? Well, I didn't think I, I didn't know what I was walking in on, number one. Nobody <laughs> could have imagined that. But, uh, you know, when I did find out there was a hurt horse, I, I don't know if I would have stayed if I didn't know there was a hurt horse because they were so troubled and they weren't able to pay me. And to go along with that is I had a lot of prejudices against people with addiction. I had been robbed four times. I did not have a soft heart about people with addiction. I thought they were lazy, all kinds of things we think, you know, or I, at least I think I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I walked in uh, to the situation, I pretty much saw what I expected to see, you know, a bunch of people, you know, tattoos all over their body, some across their forehead, you know, barbed wire neck tattoos and guys that can't even look me in the eye and a lot of guys that resented me even being there. So yeah, it's pretty remarkable that I stayed and that, that the transformation happened. But uh, there was a horse named Luna who one of the residents had tried to rope and one of the prisoners had tried to rope because he was a, a team roper back in his past life before he was in prison. He he missed, but she reared up inside the stall and hit her face on the beam and she had this big old crack right through down the middle of her face and her whole right eye was shut and this is probably like I don't know how many weeks it had gone on like six weeks and they couldn't catch her they hadn't been able to catch her for two years and that's why they were trying to rope her and anyhow they couldn't get the vet was there the vet couldn't treat her so who else was there besides me because they weren't going to pay and they were really dangerous and I thought geez you know I don't know I got hooked by it and quite quickly I saw humans just making changes in behavior way faster than any human behavior changes I've ever seen in my horse training business. You know, people being more accountable for their actions, uh, just being able to lay it all on the line, you know, because they had so much to lose. And these horses, they wanted to connect with them so bad. And it was really the big changer was when I started bringing some of my horses over. I'd bring my horses over that were pretty broke and well-trained and we would put the other horses up, you know, cause if I didn't, those horses would attack my horses. <laughs> so we put those horses up and then they got to be, the residents got to see what, what horses really are. And that was for, they couldn't believe it. They were like, whoa, this is fun. I mean, they really don't try to kick you all the time. <laughs> you know, oh, and, you know, they didn't even try to bite me. I can't believe it. You know, that kind of thing where as soon as they saw what could, horses could be, mm-hmm. then they got, then they were like, let's do it. Let's do it. And they were so in. I had the most dedicated group of people, you know, mm-hmm. so it was beautiful. 
It was, and you know, and bless, bless your heart for, for doing this there, you know, there, I, we don't want to give away too much in the book, but there was a, there is a happy ending for Luna, uh, the mm-hmm. horse that was, was terribly injured. And, and not only was there a happy ending for the horses, but there was learning for you. And there was, you know, there was growth for the people you're working with through the connection that, that you helped them establish with first your horses and then this herd. So in, in it's it's such a compelling story, and you weren't paid for this. This is a service to the horses and humanity, and and you weren't paid for it. How did the how did the folks at the ranch discover you and 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 just decide to make that that phone call uh, to you to ask for your help? I always keep a card up at the local feed store in the town nearby, and everybody knows me there. So people come in and ask if do you know anybody can help us with our horses? And I'm sure that's how it went down because that's how they got my number. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that the big difference was when Luna got hurt, two people had already been injured by the horses, uh, broken wrist and been, somebody was kicked in the chest and things had happened in uh, quick succession to make them have to reach out. Luna got hurt, two people got hurt. And that's when I got the call. You know, I think, oh, and I wanted to say because of all those accidents that happened at the at the ranch, they decided to put two women in charge of the horse program, two women who knew very little about horses. <laughs> but then again, nobody there knew much. So if I don't know if they would have ever called a woman if those two women weren't hadn't been put in charge. One of the men who was uh, the manager at that time, he was just a real open person and you know, really believed that, uh, believed in me, believed in me staying and helping. And thank God he, it was him and those two women that just had a lot of belief in me. And he had a belief in those two women. He knew something was really wrong. He knew he had to put somebody else in charge. So he put these two beautiful women in charge and that's how they called me. Oh, know. that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Girl power, go women. Yeah, it was totally girl power. <laughs> Girl power. There's something about women and horses, I'm telling you, you know, and, and us uniting around their best interests, for sure. The story is so raw and so real. Why did you choose to write such a personal memoir, you know, about your life and your experiences on the on the ranch? Yeah, that was, that was tough. I, you know, memoir is not for the the faint of heart. <laughs> yeah, so I never intended to put myself in the book. I always thought, you know, my way around putting myself in the book, there was this higher ground I was holding, I thought, anyhow, was, you know, this is not about me, it's about the people, you know, they are more interesting than me, you know, they're the story, the story about the people and the horses, I'm just, a, I don't want to be in the book, I don't, and I was pushed and pushed and pushed, you know, through my MFA program, as well as my thesis advisor, who was very gentle, but she pushed me to, then the editor from Norton got a me and he was actually the one that could pry it out of me the most because I was dropping these little one-liners in the book but I wouldn't substantiate them you know I wouldn't I wouldn't talk about them I just drop them and he would just say hey could you talk a little more about that just a couple paragraphs you know he wouldn't like really dig you know and it was that kind of soft prying or whatever and uh, I think also my partner uh, Glenda she uh she she kind of brought it out of me too because as people were trying to get me to talk about myself she kept saying ginger don't you remember when you would come home from that ranch and how moved you were and how i always used to say to you 
what is it, Ginger? What is it that you're so drawn to there? And and so that was something for me to go back to. I, I realized she had seen it in me and I needed to I needed to find it. You know, I needed to find what it was I was so drawn to, but because it became an a, a obsession. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have been at that ranch than to actually continue on with my practice with horse training and riding. I I was more interested in what was going on over there. I didn't know it at the time. I did not know it at the time. But writing this book made me realize it, that I was I was as much affected as anybody there, as much as the horses, as much as the residents. I I was a big player, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but I did not want to write about me. <laughs> I think that's very, you know, part of being an introvert and and part of the writer's journey too. And sometimes in some cases it's also about being a woman. Who who am I to include myself in this story? Like who am I to write about my experiences? And I am so grateful that that Glenda encouraged you and you had the soft hand of your editor to encourage you to and, and all the other people involved to to put yourself into the story because it made it so real and rich uh, for the reader, the reader of your book to, to get that glimpse of what it was like for you, because this is, you know, this is not your everyday undertaking, right. To, to get involved with this sort of situation or these sort of people. Yeah. No. And thank you. Thank you for the gift that you gave us with your words. Now going back to, to writing a memoir, this is not a space that I'm, you know, familiar with because I write fiction. So you know, how do you go about writing writing a memoir? Like, how did you get started on your journey uh, to to getting pen on paper and then inserting yourself into the story? <laughs> yeah, well, so I went and got an MFA from the Institute of American Indian Arts, and I didn't think I was going to be writing this book. I was going into poetry because that's an, a love of mine. And I was just at that point in my life where I just really wanted to work on my writing. And I wasn't thinking about writing a book, even though that was part of the MFA sort of plan was that by the end of the two years, you have half of a book. So I went in, did my first poetry uh, workshop and came home the first, because we had seven days of the workshop. And the first night, you know, I have have lessons. I had things I was supposed to be writing about in poetry. And I just, I wrote the first chapter of this book. Mm -hmm. I did. And it just came flying out of me. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm in poetry. I, I talked to my professor about it and I said, I don't want to stop this, but I, but I want to stay in this class. Can I stay here? Because she was such a great teacher. And mm-hmm. I think it was her that stimulated it all. And, and I said, can I stay here for the next seven days? And if it keeps coming like this, can I, can I move over to creative nonfiction? Mm-hmm. That's, how it st- that's how it started. And it really was five o'clock in the morning trying to get ready for my class and get my stuff ready so that I could present something in the poetry class. And I wrote the first chapter of, that, of the book, you know, first draft. But I thought, oh, no, wow. Yeah, something, <laughs> something else is happening here. <laughs> I, it, it, it's like it, that's amazing because it's like you, you in your responses to the questions I sent over you're like you have to follow the muse and the, and that's sort of what it's like it's like this lightning bolt that all of a sudden you're like I don't know where this is is coming from and in yeah. and in that moment it's like to, to choose to follow it is very brave right because you, you're not often sure where it's leading you but but you followed your muse and and there you were you you made the adjustments you talked to the right people so you could continue on this path that kind of came to you surprisingly, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. 
I love this part too, because um, in your memoir, very, very often uh, your relationship with a particular horse uh, parallels the path of your human relationship. How did horses help you identify needing self-improvement while at the same time instilling self-worth with yourself and others? I mean, how are the, hor- how, how are the horses part of, of this whole process for you? Well, I had a horse. Uh, well, I think that was exactly why I got into horses. I don't think I love to ride, man. I love to ride. We all love to ride. But I don't think that's the only reason I got into horses. <laughs> now I can say that, you know, back then I didn't know. And I think that's true for a lot of us. I do. You know, here we are. We want to ride and we love horses. And there's this under something's underneath there. And for me, it's some kind of depth of perception um, that they bring me into like a m- moments in time and just so so much like meditation in some ways you know um, that you just can't leave the moment uh, when you're with your horse and you don't want to so for me I think even early on with my f- first my own horse I mean I used to go out all times of the day to see her you know middle of the night you know if I woke up at two, I'd get out there. So there was something deep going on that I needed a horse and, and she came into my life. So for me, I think personal transformation and horses have always been like together, you know, mm-hmm. in the industry of, of horse training, you don't always get to, to work on that with people because you, you're trying to fix a specific thing in a horse or a problem that, you know, they won't go over the jump or they won't put their hindquarters here or whatever. You're always working on these physical dynamics and they don't often get a chance to work on the, the the real personal I find my work now is moving more there when I got over to the ranch with these horses and these people it was all right there you know it was all like right on that skin you know like the change and the everything about them was so visibly changing in front of me mm-hmm. literally physically changing in front of me and it was the first time I got to do it got to work with people and do the both the give them the gift of riding and and working with horses but give them the gift of how horses can change us but I think I've always I think that's always what I was drawn to you know not just the riding part you know mm-hmm. yeah and and I love in the book how you detail the changes that you experience while working on the ranch and the horses and the people and and there's some moments where you know, you actually, through the horse's mannerisms, you read like what's going on with that horse and the personality and what they're trying to show you. And you work with that rather than shift a behavior. You, you acknowledge the behavior and you, and you work with it. And there's some moments that are challenging, you know, when you're working with the residents of the ranch and, and, you know, cleaning the hooves or getting close to the horses or leading the horses or approaching the horse. I mean, it's just so, I mean, you can see that parallel. You just detailed it so perfectly. Often what the behavior of the horse is reflecting is what is going on for the other person. Yeah. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Yeah. There was this one moment with Luna, the injured horse. uh, She was the last holdout and she would never like let too many people even lead her. You know, she would swing around and kick you. I mean, she was so fast. (laughs) She just didn't trust, didn't trust, didn't trust. And there was a moment where she finally changes and uh, just for a few people to be able to lead her, and you, you would have thought that they won the lottery. You know, they were like, did you see that? She's letting me lead her. And I remember they said, she trusts us. No one trusts us, you know? And, and I, 
And that kind of thinking, like the way they changed and the way the horses changed them like that, I'll never forget that for Luna. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, that was a very moving part of the book. Could you hold up the book for those of us, for those listeners watching us on YouTube? So they could, yes, it's so it's, beautiful. It's, yeah, it really is. The cover is just fantastic. If I can talk about the cover a little bit, this is an artist. She's she's in, uh, inside the cover. I don't know her name, but they gave me they gave me um, four different. The publisher gave me four different beautiful artists to choose from. And uh, this was one of them. And they, she didn't have blue eyes, the horse originally in the art. But I asked, can we have some blue eyes? Because there's, Luna had blue eyes Aww. and Estrella, her sister had blue eyes. I just have to say they did a beautiful job on the cover and that's not always the case with horse, um, horse books. They don't get it in the publishing world <laughs> too much sometimes. <laughs> yeah, so. it, it is a beautiful cover. And what, what I love about this particular artist is that the, the, you probably can't see it on YouTube, but the detail of the yeah. the fur of the horse's face and and the blue eyes are striking. But the the detail of the fur on the on the front page, yeah, I mean, it's just it's fantastic, beautiful, beautifully done cover. I mean, yeah. any horse lover would pick this up immediately and and want yeah. to know more. Which which actually leads me to the title, half broke. What does the title? of your book mean to you? And like, how do you think Half Broke captures like the heart of your memoir? I wanted to use a language from the horse world. And you know, bro- breaking horses is the old language, but this is a kind of a gritty story. It needed a gritty title. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't want people to think they were picking up a, a like a, a lighthearted horse book. I don't know, or just a lovely I just wanted it to have a little bit of grit. And uh, again, the cover helps me because it's dark. Um, But half broke, for me, half means hope. The other, you know, we still have hope, you know, and uh, we're not, we're not broken. You know, we're not full. I could, could have titled it broken, but we're not broken. We're half broke. There's a a saying in the beginning from one of the the women in, in the book and I had sent her the title and she wrote back to me in a text like this beautiful thing about all oh, that captures who we really are. You know, we have hope, you know, we are not, we are, you know, we were at the, we were at our, our, our last ditch effort to stay alive because she really was mm-hmm. and she thought she was going to die, but she still had hope. She still had a sliver of hope. And so I think that's for me, it, it uses that, that horse language of the old way about really breaking something, you know, breaking them apart versus half broke, you know, like, no, we can still have hope. I love that. And there's definitely uh, a message of hope in this book and, and that, that there's always possibility, right? Like there, there's a message of possibility in in your book as well. And, and I know that, you know, you just talked about this, you know, we are not broken. There's always hope, but is there, is there a, a particular message that you hope you leave readers with when they've finished reading Half Broke? I always hope that the writers, I think, always hope there's dimensionality to like, there's enough dimensionality, meaning you left enough for the reader to decide on their own what all of these things mean, you know, to them. Uh, so I hope I did that. Like, I really, I know writers often tell me or authors often tell me don't think about the reader I thought about the reader a lot when I was writing this book it's just for me I, I, I had to think about the reader for this book for me if 
if it can just bring a little bit of forgiveness, like I had to kind of forgive myself uh, of all my own prejudices over the years and working at the ranch, I was a, a progress, you know, a project of forgiveness. Like I had to really forgive my judgmental attitudes about people with addiction. I still work on it all the time. And I hope maybe this opens up a way to see the, the human beings behind the addiction. And it's not a real flowery presentation of addiction and recovery. It's a hard, hard process. But in the end, we can still hold some forgiveness uh, there and, and some hope. Um, but that be able to see the people behind their addiction, which I have clearly been able to see. I think the book shows it mm -hmm. about people really emerging through their addiction and you start really rooting for people to make it. That's how I feel about people. When I meet people who are in recovery and who are really in recovery, boy, they look beautiful. They look more beautiful than anybody I know. You know, I mean, they are so clear eyed and straight, straight from the heart and working their butt off to, to, to survive each day, you know, mm -hmm. they are really inspiring people to me. There certainly is possibility for awakening and, you know, and, and there's always the opportunity to give people a chance because I think you mentioned in your questions, uh, your response to the questions, you know, a person is always loved. They're, 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 they're from someone, right? They're yes. a brother, they're a sister, they're a mom, they're a father, right? And That's right. Did yeah. you want to? Yeah, that that's little. exactly it. You know, when you see people, when I see people on the street, that's something I say to myself all the time is like, that's somebody's daughter, you mm -hmm. know, no matter, because sometimes I get kind of creeped out when I'm walking up to the Walmart and people are following behind me and I get creeped out and a little annoyed and I have to shift and turn mm -hmm. around and take a good look and go, that's somebody's daughter. You know, that's my sister. That's your sister. That could be any one of us, you know. That's a really incredible way to look at life and, and, uh, and humanity and other people. And thank you for sharing that. So what advice would you offer to uh, another writer who aspires to pen a memoir? Do you have any, <laughs> any advice you could share? I know you already mentioned it's pretty raw and it gets really real. Um, what would you say to someone that wants to take that on? I think memoir, whew, you know, it'll change your life. You, you want to grow, write a memoir. <laughs> mm. You want to become a better human being, write a memoir. It just, you can't help, but the, whatever you write about is going to change you. And that's the best you can kind of hope for, is that whatever you're writing about is going to change you. Because you put three to four to five years into a book, I mean, some people do, I do, and, you know, change is coming. Uh, so I think memoir is super exciting when we are writing about the things that we feel the most vulnerable about. Vulnerability mm -hmm. is our path to courage. And like Brene Brown always says, and I really believe it. And so writing a memoir, you know, don't, um, first draft should as you know, lots of people say, don't worry, don't, don't edit, don't edit, just throw it out there. And don't, and memoir, often people go, oh, weren't you afraid of saying that because of your mother? Or weren't you afraid to write that because of something else? And that stops so many writers. Uh, so you have to write and write and write and not edit and not worry about who's going to say what or think what. And I, I did that throughout this book I just wrote and it wasn't till the very very end where you decide to like thin out something or make it so you don't hurt somebody's feelings um 
but don't do that when you sit down. But it has to come from something that stimulates, in my opinion, your vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And that even could be something super joyful because mm -hmm. joy can really bring us to something vulnerable. So memoir for me, the best memoir is when you feel like people are really laying it out there. And I love physicality. I love memoir that sticks you into the physical world. And I think sometimes we think that's only the stuff of fiction writing, that you have to create scene and you have to create dynamic and drama. Memoir, when, when memoir is written that way, it's really great. It, mm -hmm. it has the pulse of fiction. You know, it has the drive of a story well told and um, all the developments of character. And um, so memoir, in my opinion, shouldn't be thought of as something other than fiction. You know, it's I think it, the best memoir has that same driving features. You want to know about those people. You want to see how it ends up, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. That's awesome advice. And I certainly felt that way while I was reading your book, that it had that pulse and that drive of a, of a, of a fiction book. And it, but they, they just, these people happen to be real and those happen to be your life. And you wrote, you started your memoir inside the structure of your education. Would, would you recommend someone that's new to, to memoir getting involved in like the, the class structure? How did, how did that help you get, the, get this going? Yeah, that was a good question. I would say... I was a little older when I went to my MFA program. I had a lot of life. I kind of, even though I thought I was writing poetry, once I figured it out, what I'm writing, I had it. I knew what I was going to be doing for the next two years. Whereas a lot of people came in in my MFA program younger, not really knowing what they were going to write about. I think you're going to get the most out of an MFA program or an MA program if you already are writing and you're in the middle of a project because your teachers are going to be able to help you like right away. You're going to have, you won't be like writing about one thing for one workshop and another thing for another workshop. And I saw that with a lot of students at the MFA program, they just weren't on to what they were writing about yet. And so they didn't get as, as much good instruction because how can the instructor help you if they're just helping you with their, what the 10 pages, 15 pages that you're giving them. But if, if you're already onto a project, I think something like, an MFA program is really worthwhile. I would say other, if, if you're working on figuring out what you're writing, then I would I would go to writer's workshops and I wouldn't do an MFA program. I will wait for that muse to hit me and I'd be into 30, 40 pages of what that muse is and then go for it, you know. Oh, that's great advice. And, and like have a solid you know, drive forward and then mm -hmm. a program can support the creation. Yeah. Of it. yeah. Like it's That's not how it worked, worked for me. And it worked really well for me, but I saw other people not have that work so well. That's a, that's a really great, that's figure out who you are over here in the workshops that probably aren't, you know, quite the financial investment and then move over here when you're really feeling strongly about something and you're heading in that direction. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Now this is even, this is really Cool too. You are traditionally published. Can you, you know, tell us how you ended up working with your your publisher and what it's been like uh, working together? You're published by Norton Norton Publishing. Yes. So again, I wasn't really going for a book to do the <laughs> MFA program, but by the so, and I'm also a big introvert, but I do these weird things that I throw myself out into the public anyhow. <laughs> so I decided somewhere during the program that I was going to try to publish uh, uh, one or two of these chapters is to see if my MFA program, to see if they were, could they hold up? To, you know, are they any good? And 
because I did that and a number of them did get published, that gave me this kind of confidence that then I needed. I really needed it because I'm I, I still think of myself as a horse trainer first, you know. I needed confidence about my writing. And when I got the three different chapters published, I thought I do have a book. These these are good, these are good things. So that's what made me push on it to say, okay, finish it, Ginger. And then when I got out of my MFA program, I worked at a horse farm for 15 years, a beautiful horse farm. And within a couple of weeks of my graduation, the owner died mm. of the, at the horse farm. Mm. So it threw me into a huge vulnerable place. I had to help sell and rehome about 45 horses and, you know, lost my job, um, lost a really good friend. Uh, so, and I had time on my hands. So I took some took some time, took six months, and I worked my butt off and isolated myself in this little front room of my tack room and finished my book under those circumstances, you know, where I was still trying to rehome 40 horses. And I mean, it was just my heart was broken the whole second half of writing this book. My heart was broken, you know, mm-hmm. from my circumstances. It's not a bad place to write from. You know, you get right to your core and you can't really leave it behind because it's your everyday experience. And I tell writers that all the time. It's like, you, you're, are you crying? Good. Good time to write. <laughs> you know, That's true. And so uh, I set a date um, where I signed up for a full book workshop, like, uh, you know, a manuscript workshop. And there was five other writers in that workshop that also wrote full books. And we were mm-hmm. working our whole book. And at that workshop is where I met my agent. Mm. Um, yeah, she she was sitting next to me at the dinner table the first night. I didn't know she was the agent. And I just started, she was like, oh, what are you writing about? So I was like, I'm writing about these horses. <laughs> you know, I'm not, think- I don't know who she is. She, her mouth was like, mm-hmm. and she was like, did you pick me? Did you pick me? So, can I read those 10 pages? So I, I picked her and she read them and interesting thing about about that as she did this wonderful thing she didn't sign me or anything and she said hey you know I want to give this to about 10 other readers and she gave them to 10 readers at uh, Washington State who are in the MFA programs there and she uses a lot of those uh, students to be readers it was great because I got 10 other readers to read my whole manuscript so by the end of it I had 15 good readers on my manuscript and she said, take it, uh, take all this advice and work on it. And I did, I took another six months and I had 15 copies of my manuscript on my really big table. Mm-hmm. And I went to work on it really hard. Um, it just took a lot of critique. It did. It took a lot of critique to make it as, as to where it ended up. It was really interesting. The whole process of critique. I have a lot of confidence now in critique that I did not have when I first started writing. She so went about six months later, I sent it back to her. I said, I'm, I'm wor- I worked on it. You know, I didn't even talk to her in between that. That's, you know, I think she might've thought I was not going to work on it or whatever. I sent it back to her and I said, I worked on it. Here it is. And I didn't know what to expect. I, I thought she'd come back with another round of critiques. And she said, it's ready. And I'm like, it's ready. And she's like, it's ready to go to New York. And I'm like, oh my God, are you kidding wow. me? <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't take long once it goes to New York. It does that. She got a list of editors she she knows and and wanted, and it didn't take very long. It happens very fast once once the, when it hits New York. It happens very fast. It either gets picked up or it doesn't. You know. 
And then, so, and so she pitched it to a variety of editors and was looking for who was most interested in in taking your manuscript. And and these are people she had relationship with. Yeah. Yeah. At the different publishing houses. And so she said to me, because I had a couple calls from different publishing houses and she said before the calls, she said, remember, you're looking for somebody who loves, loves, loves your book. That's all you're looking for. <laughs> and I thought that was the best advice because a couple of them were, I could tell they really loved the book, but I could also hear something in their voice, some questions. And by the time uh, Tom Mayer from Norton called me, it was an hour long love fest on my book. You know, mm-hmm. he never really said, we're going to change this or what, I got some questions about that. The only question he did say was, you know, I, the only concern I have is, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this story to go public? You're very private. And, mm. you know, do you feel like you're ready? And I, I said, I'm ready. You know? Wow. What a tremendous story. I mean, what I, what I love about this is like the lightning struck, you followed the muse and then it feels like everything just kind of lined up to like the universe, like lined up to support you moving through the process of taking taking these pages and then bringing them full, like full on to a book. Like you, you sat next to your agent and you shared with her and she took interest. Then you, then she, she helped you guide you along the way. She, she, you know, you got these wonderful, you know, beta readers or advanced readers that provided critique for you. So you could take that feedback and then work on your book and make it stronger. And then it landed in the hands of a editor who loved your book and and now you're published. Like that's an, that's an incredible story. Yeah. And I know that not uh, everybody has a, a, a glory story around publishing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, because I've heard so much. So, I am really grateful, but I have had a really, really good team. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I, I'm so glad that I can be one author that says, you know, don't, you know, don't think it's going to go bad. You yeah. Know? yeah. I love that. It takes that's- a ton of work. It takes a ton of work. I mean, that's the thing that 15 copies of my manuscript on my table. You know, and working through the notes and trying to figure out which ones I needed to listen to. And I mean, I've never done anything like that. So mm-hmm. that's a skill. Set yourself out to just build your skills because that's, you know, writing is all about not just your story, but all the skills around writing a story. You mm-hmm. know? Absolutely. And I'm I'm just very happy to hear that you didn't have to suffer the uh the rejection letters we all hear so much about so that, you know, so it's great. And, and this is a, it's a very positive story and, you know, it, 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 these things do happen and I'm so happy it happened for you. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. So you, you have mentioned a couple of times that you're, you're pretty introverted and you're very private, but you did, you know, you wrote this memoir. So what, what are some ways that you are reaching out to readers? So because I went traditional, they had a, have a publicist who did all the heavy early heavy work you know and she's really wonderful for Norton and she did all of the reach sending the book out everywhere I don't know so that's how it it ended up getting uh, reviewed in the New York Times book review that's incredible how did that make you feel that was I was in Paris when I found that I was my sister's in Paris and uh, I was visiting her and I got the email and I I said this I said oh my god oh shit and I (laughs) And at the same time, because New York Times book review can be kind of, kind of be intense. Yeah, 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 it can be intense. They don't, they don't just, they're not always just nice. And uh, so it was a good, good review. I can but, include it. I'll include it in your show notes too, so people can take a look okay. at, at it. Yeah. yeah, 
<laughs> so anyhow, the, my publicist has done a lot of the heavy lifting. And so it, it was clear to me from all the notes they sent me that it would be up to me to reach to the horse world. Mm. It would be up to me to reach out to the recovery world. Mm. They've done all the literary and reviews and all those kind of reaching out. So I my part is to all the things that matter to me, like I want people from the horse world to know this book exists. I, I want people in the mental health profession to have access to it, mm -hmm. uh, drug and alcohol counselors. So yeah, and I'll probably be reaching out to the gay community some too in the appropriate mm -hmm. places. So, mm -hmm. but so my, that's my, my job, you know. Well, that's great. Well, I am part of the horse world and I absolutely right. enjoyed your book. And I'm so glad you, you reached out to me about being on the podcast because I'm, it, this is a fascinating story and I'm learning so much and I truly, truly enjoyed your book and I'm so happy for your success. So I, and I always like to ask these questions too. I know we've kind of danced around the topics a little bit, but, but for you, what has been the hardest part about being an author? You know, I'm sure your introvertedness has a part, a play in this, but, and then on the flip side, what, what has been the very best part about your author journey so far? The hardest part definitely is going around and doing the book tour. <laughs> yeah. And people said that it would be, and now I get to say it is. <laughs> and it's not just because I'm an introvert. It's, it's no fun out there by yourself. You know, mm. um, you go from uh, one bookstore to the next and they're all lovely people, but it, yeah, now the moment of the book reading when you have people in front of you and you get to tell your story is wonderful. That's the best part. Mm -hmm. But you're in hotels and you're in your car and you're on a plane. And and I was doing that for a couple months. And so I'm really glad to be down from that. And I'll go back out, but not like that again, you mm -hmm. know, not like being gone so much. And you're um, away from your horses. <laughs> yeah. And my job, which is mm -hmm. the, the horse world. So it was like I was doing two jobs all at once for those two months. The best part is writing the story for mm -hmm. sure. It's the best part. I, I hope other writers feel that way. I know we talk about how writing is torture, but it is so good for the soul too. And it brings us into such a presence, mm -hmm. gives us because of hope, you know, it's all the things we, we, I don't know, it brings the best of us out. And so writing the story is the best part, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> and that's so lovely. I, I, I have exactly that same experience. Like I always feel better when I have written. And then there's moments where I'm writing where I don't even feel like I'm there. I'm like yeah. in the flow of the book. But for me, the hardest part is always just sitting down and getting started. Once I get started, I'm okay, but it's getting there. Do you did you have that experience at all? It really depends. These uh, stories, because memoir is different, and I experienced all of them. So they just as soon as I would get done with one chapter, and I did not write them in order. I ended up putting them in their order, but uh, just chronological, so we could follow the calendar of the year. No, these things like came out of me like water. So that wasn't hard for me. Now it's a little harder. I'm working on some other stuff. And what's distracting is that I'm doing both things. I'm trying to write new work and and work on uh, getting this book out there. So mm -hmm. I know once things settle, uh, but you know, maybe for me too, 20 pages, 30 pages in, I'm pretty far in, right? You know, I can, it kind of goes from there maybe the first 10 pages are the hardest, you know, mm -hmm. just because you, you don't know exactly what you're going to be writing about it so early on, you know, that's, that's, 
definitely true. And and then every every writer has a different experience, right? So it's like I love to hear the the different ways people write and the different experiences around writing. Right. You know, it's yeah. like every it's different for everyone. There is no one way it goes. It's just, you know, but but I think we all feel the magic of actually writing the story, which I think we all can share. Yes. I had a quick question about okay, so you when you when you did finally establish a relationship and decide which publisher you want an editor and which publisher you want wanted to go with how long did it take from you know when when perhaps you signed the contract with them to actually having you know your book that you could hold and start talking about yeah it is a really long process okay it's so long (laughs) (laughs) so like years months yeah okay uh signed uh, signed and then the actual arc or the early reader's mm-hmm. copy a year to a year and a half later, mm. maybe even more, wow. at least a year and a half, yeah, to the arc. Mm-hmm. And then there's another six months of before because the, they got all, once the arc comes out, they have to get the early reader copy out so that they can start promoting it, getting it to bookstores and, and reviewers. That gives them six months to get the actual book out. You know, so they, mm-hmm. so it's, it's a two years, I would say, from when you sign to when you get a book. Was that two hard years. for you? Were you like wringing your hands, like waiting for it? Or were you like, okay, I'm going to focus on what's next? While I you're- started, I started on the new work. Uh, Cause I had a feeling like once this book came out, boom, I was going to get taken away. So I started on this next book. So that was really good. And I did a couple writers workshops just to keep me in, in the world of writing because my world of horses is really far away from the world of writing. You know, mm-hmm. like even though those two words riding and writing sound a lot alike and people <laughs> always get confused when I talk, but when I'm out working horses, people see me just as this horse trainer and I have, like I'm training horses along and then getting stuff from my publisher. And I'm like, so I'm both those things in a world that just sees me as one thing. That was one of the weirder parts. Mm -hmm. And now at least the book's out and I can be both those things to people. They, Mm -hmm. all my clients have the book. They, they know me as a writer now, as well as a trainer. So it's kind of, I get to be both of me now, you know, (laughs) that's that's cool. And that, you know, that is interesting. It's true. You know, it's like two, two separate communities and worlds until the, the final product is there and people have that to experience you as that. Yeah. And you know, that it's awesome that you just went to your next project because that is the, the next question for you. Like, what are you curious about right now? Like what's next? Where are you going? What are you thinking? (laughs) I, I think I'll always write about the things that I love and the things I'm passionate about. So and I, I know one of my teachers from school said, you know, most writers only write about two or three things their whole life, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's what he means is that we stay with what we're passionate about and what our kind of our history. Like the writer Fenton Johnson grew up in a like near a monastic community in Kentucky. Those characters are in every one of his books mm-hmm. you know his setting is always Kentucky even though it's different every time and like Pam Houston's the same way you can really see the threads of of her life in all her books and I I believe that's going to be true about me I I will continue to write about uh, at-risk people horses the mountains and uh, and right now it's kind of what I'm writing about is this taking this journey into the mountains with uh, six uh, at-risk women 
mm. and in a part of their recovery is happens up in the mountains so that's what i'm writing about now i'm excited to see what happens next in your author career and you know you've already had so much success here and i'm glad to hear you have another project in the works uh we'll have to have you back when that that's uh available That'd be great yeah, and I've so enjoyed our time together. Ginger, would you share with listeners where they can find more information about you and your books? Okay, I do have a website. It's my name, www.gingergaffney.com. I am on Facebook, but I'm a minimalist about Facebook and social media in general. But what I would encourage if if you want to get this book, you know, Amazon has it. It's on Audible. But if you can go, because re we really need you to go to your local bookstore and buy it from your local bookstore. You can get on my website and, and links there, but I encourage you to just find your bookstore at home and, and use it there, you know, get my book there. Almost every bookstore has it. If they don't, they can order it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's support our local bookstores in, in Ginger and request, request her books there if they aren't already there. I will, of course, link to all those places in the show notes, too, so you can find more information about Ginger and her book. And I'll also link to that uh, New York Times book review, which is such an exciting moment for, for an author. Uh, and I'm glad it was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Ginger, I so appreciate the gift of your time. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you, all you horse people. I love you. <laughs> we'll get we'll get the word out to the horse community. Look at East yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes, and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author, who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle. <laughs>